Hey, is it well with your soul? Oh, man, praise the Lord. They were leading that. Jonathan led that a bit differently in the first service this morning. And uh, he had us pause on that one line. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. And he had everybody pause there. Well, I had my eyes closed, and I was, I was raptured in worship. And I just came right back in on that next line. My sin, not in part, but the whole. And I was the only one singing it to the top of my lungs this morning. So. And Andrew was sitting beside me there in the, the first service, and he said, Dad, that was embarrassing. <laughs> hey, but you know something? David said, I'll get even more undignified than this when he danced before the Lord. Because really, it's not about us, is it? Worship's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about our performance, but it's all about him. And I can't help but just get caught up when I think about what Jesus has done so that it can be well with my soul. It has nothing to do with what I've done or what you've done or our moral performance, but it's well with my soul simply because of what Christ has done in his sinless life and his vicarious death and his bodily resurrection and his ascension. He's interceding for us right now which means you've got an advocate in heaven in Jesus Christ, and I'm so thankful. Well, if you have your Bible, take it and be finding your place with me one last time in Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, for those of you who may be joining us for the first time this morning, over the past couple of months, we've been in a series of messages from Ephesians chapter 6, uh, looking at the armor of God and this subject of spiritual warfare. And so we began in verse 10 with Paul's admonition to the church to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might or the strength of his might. And he wants the church to be aware that we are in, indeed involved in conflict, but we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against spiritual wickedness. And so the conflict is spiritual in nature. And we've not been left without resources because there's a much-needed provision that's been given to us as those who are in Christ. And so in order for us to be strong in the Lord, we've got to put on the armor of God. And what that means is, by faith, we appropriate who we are and what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ himself is the believer's armor so that you and I stand not in terms of our own victory or our own victorious accomplishments but we stand in the victory of the Lord Jesus who took on the enemy who fought and won the victory and we stand united in him and that's good news and so Paul mentions the various pieces of the armor of God, and there are six pieces of armor that are mentioned, and we looked at those uh, one by one. And then that brings us to verse number 18, where we've been uh, the last couple of weeks, where he calls upon us now to pray. Now that we're dressed and we're ready for battle, what do we do? Do we just stand around? No. Paul says you need to pray. 
And so prayer then is an offensive weapon that we've also been given. And now it's not associated with any particular piece of armor for that matter. But I really believe Paul is saying this is how you fight your battles. You do so on your knees. Dressed and ready for battle, having put on the armor of God. Here's how you put on the armor, by faith and prayer. But now that you are standing in Christ and his accomplishments fully aware of who he is and what he's done on your behalf, you're to pray. And so notice what he says beginning in verse number 18. The Bible says, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And so speaking once more then from this subject, dressed and ready for battle. Our Father, it is in Jesus' name that we bow and we pray and we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that you would give me words to speak Father, that you would give your people ears to hear what the Spirit would say to the church. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen and amen. So, to be strong in the Lord requires that we put on these pieces of armor which are mentioned, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of gospel peace. We're to take up the shield of faith by which we're able to extinguish all of those flaming arrows and those fiery missiles that Satan launches at us, whether it be in the form of insinuation or temptation, doubt that may arise in our mind. Satan certainly has no shortage of fiery missiles in his arsenal, but the way that we combat those is by putting on the armor of God, extinguishing those fiery missiles with the shield of faith putting the helmet of salvation upon our head. Now, you think about what we've said about the armor of God and how it really, in a soldier's life, all of that armor would have protected his vital organs. And the helmet itself would have been something to protect the soldier's head. And physically, your head houses your brain. And so we would associate that perhaps with our mind and our thoughts. And so we're to put on the helmet of salvation so that we're protected against the lies of the enemy. And in particular, salvation that's referred to there in verse 17 uh, has to do uh, with um, really the future tense of salvation, the hope of salvation that we have, which means no matter how difficult the conflict may get, no matter how hard our circumstances in life may become, you and I have the hope of salvation, which means that there is a bright day for the child of God. And all that's going on in the world, and you think about all of the violence and all of the warfare and all of the uh, evil that's manifesting itself in the world, listen, we've got a bright future to look forward to as the people of God because men and women, Jesus Christ is coming again. And so this is the helmet of the hope of salvation. And then we're to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so really, that's the only offensive weapon that's mentioned in this armory, which is ours, if the armor of God is defensive, well, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, is, is the one and only offensive weapon that we've been given. 
And it's, it's, it, the word that's used there, translated as word of God, it's not the Greek word logos, which refers to the word in its entirety, but it's the word rhema, which refers to a very specific word from the word. So that the Apostle Paul is saying when you're waging this spiritual warfare and you find yourself in the heat of battle, know that you are given the sword of the Spirit, which is the rhema of God, which means that God will give you right here from his word the very specific word when you need it. Which is why you and I need to spend time as students of the Bible. We need to spend time with God in the pages of his word because it's from his word that God impresses truth upon our heart. We need this for insight as far as life is concerned. And all of that brings us really to verse 18 where Paul says, now you're dressed and ready for battle. Here's how you engage in this battle. You're to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and all supplication. So even though it's not described in terms of a weapon, really, coupled with the Scriptures, prayer is also an offensive weapon that you've been given as a child of God. So that together, the sword of the Spirit and praying in the Spirit, in many ways, these are the weapons of our warfare, which are described in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Bible says, though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. That is, we're not fighting our battles through earthly means, through fleshly means, but the weapons of our warfare, they're not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So how do we engage in this conflict? Well, we do so with the Word of God and by praying in the Spirit. And so that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And so in these verses, I find some very valuable lessons about the all-important place that prayer should occupy in our lives as Christian men and women. Now, there are really three of these uh, principles. I gave you the first last week uh, when I told you that prayer really involves relationship. And so the first thing that we see here about prayer is, is the relationship that we have in prayer. Notice that first expression, that first phrase in verse 18 where the Bible says, praying at all times in the Spirit. So having put on the armor of God, what are we now to do? Really, Paul answers the question of what, when, and how as far as prayer is concerned. What am I to do? Well, I'm to pray. And he references prayer at least four times in verse 18, using a word that basically means to stretch oneself out before God in an attitude of complete dependence. It's the idea of prostrating yourself before God and his omnipotence. Prayer is the God-given communication link between heaven and earth, time and eternity, the finite and the infinite, so that when you pray, you're literally calling upon the infinite God to intervene in your very finite circumstances. And so it's nothing short of a miracle. It's nothing short of a supernatural intervention whereby heaven intervenes in the earthly affairs of your life. And so what do we do? Well, we pray. When should we pray? Paul answers that question for us when he tells us that we should pray at all times. 
And the word that he uses there, it's not the typical Greek word for time, chronos, which refers to time in its chronological sense or a general way of referring to time, but he uses the word kairos, which speaks of an opportune time, appointed in that sense. And so he's saying that we're to pray specifically in relation to this evil day that he's written about back up in verse number 13. You know, the day when it just seems like the enemy is staring you in the face. Uh, When it feels like the bottom has fallen out of life. In those situations, Paul says, don't panic. You need to pray. And so what, when, and then notice how exactly we should pray. He says, praying at all times in the Spirit which is something that implies relationship. Uh, praying in the Spirit, that's, that's not something to be mystical. You think, does that mean something sort of mystical? Is he referring to some mystical experience and that type of thing? No, to pray in the Spirit simply means that you have a relationship with God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit so that even our praying reflects the Trinitarian character of our God, the triune nature of God. How do we pray? We pray to God the Father through Jesus Christ the Son who gives us access to the Father, but we pray in the Holy Spirit. That is, we pray in His power. We pray pray according to His promise. We pray in alignment with His purposes. That's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray in the model prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in other words, prayer is not so much about me getting my will done in heaven as much as it is God's will being done on earth. And so I'm I'm mindful of that. Praying in the Spirit means that I've got a relationship with God the Father through Christ the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me ask you this question. Have there ever been times in your life where you were just so burdened as a believer, you didn't know what to pray or how to pray? You knew you needed to pray, but perhaps as you got alone with God and you just began to cry out to Him and pour out your soul to Him, you found that the words just weren't there, that you couldn't really begin to articulate, as far as your words are concerned, the burden that you had in your heart. Well, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 26, that the Holy Spirit, he helps us in our weaknesses, for we don't know how we ought to pray as we should. We think we do often, but we really don't. And so the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. So that when you get before God and you're pouring out your soul before him, you, you sense that you've got this burden and you may feel guilty because you don't really even know how to articulate it. It's in those moments, beloved, that you rely upon the power and the help and the comfort of the Holy Spirit who helps you in those times of weakness. Better to pray with heart and no words than words with no heart. There's a lot of times where praying has just been according to words. We go through some formula. We approach prayer as if it were some ritual. And the words may be there, but the heart and the burden may not be there. No, when it comes to praying, would to God that the heart and the burden be there, even if we feel like the words are lacking. It's in those moments we rely upon the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. And so really the first thing that we need to understand about prayer is that it involves this personal relationship. In many ways, prayer represents the heart and soul of your relationship with God. 
We pray to God the Father through Jesus the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so in prayer, here's what you've been given. Really a backstage pass into a personal audience with the king of the universe. Isn't that an awesome thought? And so the enemy, he's going to oppose that in your life, and he's going to try to keep you from prayer. He's going to try to distract you as far as prayer is concerned. But know what you have in prayer, unlike anything else, is, is, is really this divine authority whereby you're invoking heaven into history, welcoming God and his strength and his resources into your own earthly affairs. So that's the relationship that we have in prayer. Now, notice the second thing. Paul has something to say about the responsibility that we have in prayer. Not only is it relationship, but notice these words in verse 18. They're really instructions which carry commanding authority for our lives. So he's reminding us of the responsibility that we have as Christians to pray. And notice the the, the use of that term all in verse 18. He says we're to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. We're to keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so what that is, it's really just a powerful reminder of the opportunity and and the responsibility that we have to pray. Now, what does that responsibility include? Well, at least four things. Number one, notice how we must pray with purpose. Purpose. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but you know when you're ever on the the, the receiving end of some instruction from someone, someone tells you something to do, maybe a boss, co-worker, or whatever, we all tend to wonder whether or not that person practices what he preaches. Uh, For example, I'm a pastor, But I'll be honest, if I were a church member, I would want to know, does my pastor practice what he preaches? You know, the definition of a person who says one thing but does another is really a hypocrite, right? And so if these Ephesian Christians are being called upon by Paul to pray at all times, to pray all prayer and supplication with all perseverance for all the saints. I would ask this question if I were in Ephesus. Okay, Paul, do you practice what you preach? And when you study the book of Ephesians, and for that matter, when you study Paul's letters, you'll discover that Paul knew what it meant to pray. And so he's not calling upon Christians to do something that he himself does not already practice. And if you want just a little bit of insight into the way that Paul prays, go back to Ephesians chapter 1 there in your Bible for just a moment. Because just a couple of chapters uh, from where we are in chapter 6, we we see Paul engaging in prayer for these Ephesian believers. In the opening verses of chapter 1, he's explaining the vast treasury of spiritual resources that are ours in Christ. And then notice what he says there in verse number 15, He says, for this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Now watch this. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So in these earliest verses, he's wanting the church to know that he's been praying for them. He's been uh, filling the gap. He's been interceding on their behalf. Now, it's one thing for us to say that we're praying for someone, but it's another thing entirely to explain to that person how we're praying. 
It's easy to say, oh, I'll pray for you. It's another thing to stop what you're doing and pray for that person in that particular moment or to express to that person, here is how I'm praying for you in very specific ways. And so Paul doesn't just say, I've been praying for you. Notice how he tells the church, this is how I've been praying for you. He says in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He's saying, I've been praying that you'd truly know Christ, that you would truly have wisdom in the knowledge of who he is. He's saying, I'm praying for you that, that, that the Lord Jesus and the knowledge of who he is, that you would have wisdom in terms of understanding who he is. And then he says in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. Not only is he praying that they have wisdom, but he's also praying that they, they understand the hope that they have in Christ. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So he's saying, church, I want you to have wisdom. I'm praying that you have wisdom and knowledge of who Jesus is. I'm praying that you live your life with the hope that you've been given in Christ. But I'm praying that you understand something about the power of Christ that is at work in your circumstances right now. What type of power is it? Well, he says in verses 19 and 20, according to the power of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in those heavenly places. He's saying, I want you folks to know that I'm praying for you in this specific way that you understand something about the power of God that's working in your life. It's the very same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Listen, did you know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that's working in your life right now as a Christian man or a woman? And so why in the world would you ever let your circumstances bring you such anxiety to such a degree that you'd be weighed down and plagued with such fear when you understand something about the power of God that's working in your life as a believer in Jesus? You have nothing to fear. You don't have anything to worry about. That's a good word, isn't it? That's the same type of power that's working in our, in our weakness. It's manifesting itself through weakness in our own lives, in our corporate ministry as the church. And so Paul is praying a very purposeful prayer. Now that's not the only way that he's praying for these Ephesians. Uh, look at chapter 3 for just a minute because you'll notice that his prayer is expressed further in the third chapter. The first 13 verses or so in chapter 3, he's talking about the mystery of the church and how the church is made up now of both Jew and Gentile and how these Gentiles in, in Ephesus, they're now believers. They've been made to be fellow heirs and member of the same body and partakers of the same promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so when he thinks about that, once more Paul burst forth in prayer for the church. And he says in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now listen to this. Verse 16, That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. He's saying, I'm praying specifically, purposefully for you, that you would be strengthened 
by the power of the Holy Spirit in your inner being. How so? Well, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. I'm praying that as you come to know Jesus more and more, and as the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is at work in your life, and as the Holy Spirit is bringing you wisdom and knowledge and understanding of who Jesus is, I'm praying that this results in Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith. In other words, I'm praying that you look more like Jesus in your life. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you be filled with all the fullness of God. So I want to come back to my original question. Paul, do you practice what you preach? When you're calling upon us to pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer, all perseverance for all the saints... Is that something that you are doing in your own life? Well, I think the evidence shows he practices what he preaches. And so prayer then must be with purpose. If I understand the responsibility that I've been given in prayer, I've got to pray with purpose. Now notice the second thing. Not only do we pray with purpose, but we've also got to pray with precision. Getting specific. Particular. Not dealing with just generalities as such, but praying with precision. Now you'll notice there in verse 18 that Paul recognizes really two categories of prayer that he designates as all prayer and supplication. Or, or all types of prayer and request. I know that word supplication, it's not a word that we use in our everyday language. But it's a word that means requests. And so here's what he's saying. When you pray, be very specific in the way that you pray. Don't deal in just generalities, but but be laser-like in terms of your focus. Pray all prayer and supplication. And so he's describing prayer in its widest sense, but also prayer in its most narrow sense. Prayer that should be long, prayer that should be short, prayer that should be big, prayer that should be small. And you think about it, that really sums up our prayer life. There are times when we're able to go into our prayer closet and experience extended seasons of prayer and intimacy with God. And then there are other times when we're driving down the road and we breathe a prayer, maybe 10-second prayer. I think it was Spurgeon who said something to this effect. He said, very seldom do I ever pray longer than 12 minutes. He said, but I almost never go 12 minutes without praying. And that just basically describes the attitude of a prayerful Christian, that we live our lives with just this prayerful attitude, that we're praying without ceasing. There are times when we pray in groups. There are times when we pray as individuals. Sometimes our prayers will be loud and audible. Other times they'll be whispered and even inaudible to someone else. Maybe you're familiar with an old hymn that says it this way, prayer is the soul's sincere desire expressed in thought or word, the burning of a hidden fire, a longing for the Lord. Prayer is the secret battleground where victories are won. By prayer, the will of God is found and work for him begun. Now think about it. Prayer is a secret battleground. Prayer involves expressed word or sometimes even unexpressed thought. 
That word supplication, Paul is referring to the specific pleas that we ask God for help or for provision. And so when you take all of that together, he's saying we've got to pray very specifically with precision. Now listen, I think one of the reasons that we struggle so much to be consistent and even focused in our prayer life, maybe it can be traced to the fact that our prayers are so general that they don't say much of anything at all. Well, Lord, give me guidance. Well, that's a general way, but that's just wide open, isn't it? But praying with precision means that I'm saying, Lord, would you give me guidance in this particular area with this particular issue or this particular need? And sometimes we say, Lord, would you just bless my day? Well, that's wide open. How can you pray with precision when you say, Lord, bless me throughout my day? Because perhaps you know of a conversation that you've got to have with the person later in the day. Or you know of a particular circumstance that you've got that you're going to be faced with later that day. And so that gives you opportunity to be precise in terms of what you ask God to do when you ask him to bless you throughout the day. Or sometimes we pray in general ways for our family. Lord, would you just be with my family? Lord, would you just cover my family? Well, that's general, but how can you get specific and pray with precision for members of your family? How can you husbands pray for your wives? How can you wives pray for your husbands? How can you parents pray specifically with precision for your children and then vice versa? How can you children pray specifically for your parents? You see how that works? In order for us to be that precise, though, we've got to take time in our prayer closet. It may mean that you need to get out a a piece of paper and a pencil or a pen, a journal, and begin just writing out ways that you can specifically pray for very specific people. Spurgeon said it this way, what a lot of praying there is that prays for everything in general and nothing in particular. There are some people who pray, as it were, like a man shooting at a whole regiment. They fire anyhow at anything, but the man who wins his suit at the throne of grace is the man who prays distinctly for someone or something that he wills to have. And so the idea is, I've got to be specific in terms of what I'm praying, not just simply tossing up generalities to God and then going about my day. No, being specific And so is there anything right now in your life that you are specifically asking God for? And is it in keeping with the promises of his word? Is it in keeping with his character that he's revealed about himself in his word? Are you praying with the will of God and the glory of God first and foremost in your mind and heart? And when you are, pour out your soul before him and be specific in your prayers. So I've got to pray with purpose. I've got to pray uh, with just this precision. But then notice third, responsibility demands that I pray with persistence. Persistence. Notice that Paul says there in verse 18, to that end, keep alert with all perseverance. So I'm to pray at all times, with all prayer, and now with all perseverance. And by the way, that's an echo of what Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember after they shared the Passover, uh, they crossed the Kidron Valley, they went to a grove of nearby olive trees. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples? He said, I want you to watch with me while I pray. Stay alert. Persevere. 
I'm going over here and I'm going to pray. And so he goes over, he falls on his face, he begins to pray. Several verses later, he comes back to the disciples and he finds his disciples asleep. Now, I've got to be honest, we can't pick on the disciples because, I'll be honest, I'm looking in the mirror when I look at their life. While Jesus is praying, I'm over here sleeping. So it's really an indictment against their lack of spiritual perception. And he says, hey, guys, watch and pray that you not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so the idea is we're so overcome oftentimes by various temptations because we don't remain alert on the front end. And so I'm to pray at all times with all prayer and with all perseverance. I'm to pray without giving up. And here's what happens in your life. Oftentimes your struggles have this way of intensifying and increasing the intentionality of your prayer life. And so are you surprised when the Lord allows difficult circumstances to come your way? Because it's through that ordeal that he's building endurance and strength in your faith. He's testing you, trying you, and it's teaching you something about the value of prayer and the persistence with which we're to pray. One of the reasons we find this difficult is because we expect instant, immediate results. I mean, let's just face it. We live in a world where everything's on demand right? I mean, whether it be movies, whether it be meals, you want fast food now? You don't have to leave your house. Just call DoorDash and they'll bring it right there to your door. You take that phone out of your pocket, you, you, you just do whatever you want to. Used to, when we wanted to write someone, we had to do it the old-fashioned way, a handwritten letter that had to be delivered through the postal system and all of that process. Nowadays, we call that snail mail <laughs> because it just takes time. I mean, why write a letter when you can send a text? And then you can even see on your phone whether or not the message was delivered and read by the person you sent it to. And we almost get offended if we don't get an immediate response. Oh, I just can't believe they're ghosting me. It's our attitude. Some of you feel like God's ghosting you. But you've only asked him once And then you went about your day. You've not prayed with persistence. Prayer doesn't work the same way that it tends to work in our immediate, on-demand, instantaneous society. Jesus said that I'm to persist in prayer. He even gave a parable to illustrate why this is true. Luke 18. You ought to read it sometime. Where he gives a parable to his disciples to the effect that they, they ought to always pray and not lose heart. And so he tells the story about this unjust judge who has no regard for God, has no regard for man, but there's this little widow, and she's so persistent in her need. She wants the judge to hear her case, but the judge keeps ignoring her because he's an unjust judge, but she keeps on, and she's persistent, so much so that the guy says, this lady's about to wear me out. And so he he listens to her case. And the point of that, Jesus is saying, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the point that God is reluctant to hear us when we pray. He's saying, no, you're to be persistent when you go before God in prayer because there's something that God does in our life through the waiting, through the persistence, through the faith and the asking and the taking God at his word. He does something spiritually in your life through that ordeal. Some of you perhaps have got something you're praying for, maybe you've been praying for for quite some time. 
Maybe it's the salvation of a child or a parent or a friend. Maybe it's for physical healing in some capacity. Maybe it's some particular crisis or whatever that just doesn't seem to ever get any resolution. And so, is God an unjust judge? No. But he wants you to persist in prayer nonetheless. He's not reluctant to your cries. He will vindicate you in your own time. He will listen and respond according to his will. He's obligated himself to his word, and he's not going to go back on his word. That's just a good word, folks. So I've got to pray with persistence. I've got to pray with precision. I've got to pray with purpose. And then notice fourth, this responsibility of prayer involves that I pray with people. We must pray with people. Again, look at verse 18. I'm to pray at all times, with all prayer, with all perseverance. Now watch this. Making supplication for all the saints. And so I've got to pray with people, and I've got to pray for people. Doesn't it mean something to you to know that the family of God is indeed a family of brothers and sisters in the faith, and so much so the, some of the most important times that you have as the body of Christ are those times when you can get together in groups of people that you know and you love, and you know that they love you, and they're your brothers and they're your sisters, and you can pray over a particular issue. I don't know where I would go or what I would do if I didn't know that there were some people in my life that I can call on at the drop of a hat and they'll pray with me if there's a particular issue in my life. And to know that there are people praying for me even right now as I'm standing and preaching, that means more to me than anything else, folks. I think sometimes the most important part of our Sunday morning gathering it's when we get together in our life groups and you spend time not dealing with just surface stuff, but I mean really praying for one another. They're in the context of that small group gathering. It's what you see the church doing early in the book of Acts. When Peter and John are there before the council and after they're released and they go back to their own company, they go back to the believers and so they pray. What do they ask for? They ask for continued boldness to just keep speaking the word. But the fact of the matter is they go to the church, they go to their brothers and sisters for the sake of praying together. Corporate prayer. By the way, the model prayer is corporate because Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he said, pray like this, our Father which art in heaven. Not so much my Father. Now he is my Father. But when I pray our Father, that reminds me that I'm a part of a family of God that I'm to pray with people and I'm to pray for people. And Paul says, pray with all supplication for all the saints. Now he's not talking about a special class of people within the church. <laughs> he's not saying, now you pray for the saints, but now I'm not praying for you sinners. <laughs> it's not what he's saying there. No, he's referring to you and me and everyone who is in Christ. That word saint means that you've been set apart by God for himself. It doesn't mean that we're not to pray for those that don't know the Lord because most certainly we are and that leads to this final point as far as prayer is concerned and that's the resources that we have in prayer because I want you to notice in verses 19 and 20 when Paul asks the church to pray for himself he's wanting the church to pray in this specific way so that words would be given to him and boldness would be given to him to share the gospel and to preach the gospel with those that were around him in Rome. 
Because remember, he's writing this from a Roman prison. And how does he want the church to pray specifically for him? He says, pray that I be given opportunity. He's not praying for release. He's not praying as far as personal creature comforts are concerned. He says prayer is really a, a way in which all of the resources of heaven are at my disposal. And so he's saying, church, take advantage of those heavenly resources that are yours. And I want you to pray on my behalf. Pray for me. And I don't know what you think about when, when Paul's name comes to your mind. Maybe you think that he was sort of this fearless guy who was impervious to discouragement, unstoppable in terms of his calling to preach, wherever the call of God may have taken him. But that's not the case that we, we, you know, we see with Paul's life. Paul, I don't believe that Paul was a gifted natural speaker at all. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, because of what he says to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians. He says, when I was with you, I was with you in weakness, fear, and much trembling. Now, if you've ever been called upon to do public speaking, listen, you need to remember that because you're in good company because that's how Paul felt. That's how I feel every time I get up and, listen, some Sundays I come in and do something crazy like singing when nobody else is singing, and so that's embarrassing. But the point is, he's saying, I need you to pray that the Lord would empower me because God has called me to this spiritual work and this gospel advancement will not happen apart from divine enablement. So he tells the church at Corinth, I was there in weakness and fear and much trembling, but I determined to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified so that the power of God would be on display and so that man wouldn't get any glory. He's saying, church, I want you to pray for me that this Roman imprisonment, which is mine, might be an opportunity for the gospel, that I might open my mouth and boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Now the question is, does God answer the prayer of the, the Ephesian church on Paul's behalf? If he's asking that his Roman imprisonment be used as a circumstance and an opportunity for the gospel, does God answer the prayer request of the Ephesian church? Well, we don't have time to get into it, but you ought to read the last chapter of the book of Acts. Because it's evident there that as Paul is under arrest, as he's there in Rome, there are indeed people who are coming to faith as the result of his imprisonment, and God using that imprisonment as an opportunity for gospel advancement. Not the least of which is a, is a guy who's a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. There's a little book in the New Testament called the book of Philemon where Paul is writing to an individual. And, and, and Philemon has a slave whose name is Onesimus and, and Onesimus runs away from Philemon and he runs to Rome where Paul is. And so Paul is used of God to lead Onesimus to faith in Jesus Christ and he receives Christ as his Lord and Master. And Paul sends Onesimus right back to Philemon with this message in, 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 in the letter bearing Philemon's name. And the point is, God used the opportunity of Paul's Roman imprisonment. It was very fruitful, and I really believe that the fruitfulness of it can be traced back to the prayers of God's people. Now, we want to have a fruitful ministry as a church right here in the city of High Point. 
I'm going to tell you something. It won't be so much dependent upon my preaching or anybody else's preaching for that matter. But it can be traced back to your praying. And my praying. Will we truly be a church that values this backstage all-access pass where we can go before God and we can pray at all times in the Spirit all prayer and supplication with all perseverance for all the saints. May it be so. Let's stand for prayer this morning, folks. Make this personal in your own life. Is there anything that you're asking God specifically for? How much do you value prayer in your life as a Christian? We wrap all of this up in, in this series on spiritual warfare. It's come to a close, but Paul's wanting these Ephesians to understand they're in a war, but they're not, they're not fighting against flesh and blood. The conflict is spiritual. The enemy is sinister. The armor is sufficient, but he says that our praying must be strategic. Warren Wiersbe said it best. He said that prayer grants the power that enables the Christian soldier to wear the armor and wield the sword. Every head bowed and every eye closed. If you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, then listen, why not right now, right there where you are, in an attitude of repentance before God, confess your sin and your great need for Him. He loves you, my friend, so much so that He sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sin who's now risen, the risen Son of God. You confess your sin and you believe in His death and resurrection. Confess Him as your Lord. He'll save you and give you that all-access backstage pass into the throne room of heaven whereby you can know with confidence that God is your Father. And you can pray to God the Father through Jesus the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we do need you this morning. We're so desperate for you. Lord, our city is dark. Our world is dark. There are people in our families, neighborhoods, who are barreling down the highway of life, completely lost and in the dark. And Lord, should you not intervene in their life in some powerful way, they're one breath away from an eternity in hell. And God, that should be something that motivates us to pray with a great burden. To pray that people come to know Jesus. To pray specifically with precision for specific people in our families. To pray over specific issues that are raging, specific conflict. To commit that to you in faith, Lord, believing that you're a God who hears and answers prayer. And so, Lord, for those who may be burdened this morning, God, may they be encouraged with this simple reminder of the resources that are theirs in Jesus. It's for his sake that we pray. Amen.